HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Heritage on Tour. I am reporting from Denver, Slow Food, and I am incredibly excited today to have as my guest, Danielle Nirenberg. Danielle, I have been following your career for so <laughs> long. When I was at Food & Wine, we worshipped you because of your work at Food Tank. And as I've um, moved on and become part of uh, Heritage Radio Network, you know, all of your work is at the forefront of what we do in the forefront oh. of the things that we think about, the problems you're trying to solve, the way in which you're trying to help the world. So uh, welcome. Thank you. I, I feel the same about you. I've been following you forever, and I can't even believe you know my name. So it's always, <laughs> it's always nice to be around you. <laughs> so I want to start at the beginning. Sometimes the beginning is really good. Sometimes the beginning doesn't matter. But for you, because you began life, maybe not your, the first moments, but in <laughs> Defiance, Missouri, um, and you grew up in a farm town, I just, I wanted to take a moment to appreciate <laughs> that you grew up in a place called Defiance. How much do you think the place Defiance and the emotion Defiance have structured your life and work? Oh, gosh, it's such a good question. And, and, you know, like I said, I use my Defiance Missouri roots a lot. I think it's more about my parents creating that sort of, you know, think for yourself. You don't have to be like the people around you. Be, you know, be yourself. Um, I wanted to get out of there. I, at that time in my life, I was an environmentalist from the time I was very young. and I thought farmers were destroying the earth. And I thought farmers were not very smart. And I just couldn't wait to go to college and, and leave that all behind. And, you know, things changed pretty quickly after that when I started realizing how important farming communities were all over the world. So it, I think it, it set me up well to, to have that experience, but it also really changed me. And what about how defiant you are? Because you're facing food challenges around the globe. You travel internationally. Your work yeah. is international. Your work as an activist and author is international. Um, do you feel that... The spirit of your your parents set off, and they they moved to someplace quite rural intentionally. Yeah. yeah. Um, what are, do you feel defiant about? Oh my gosh! I mean, what do I feel defiant about? Almost everything that's happening in in food and agriculture right now worldwide. I feel. Um, you know, Food Tank was started on this idea of hope and success in the food system, and we work really hard to listen and and tell the stories that aren't being told. 
but we shouldn't have to do that. And, and so that's, I mean, the, what we do at Food Tank comes out of this sense of sort of desperation, I think, and urgency that we were seeing so many stories that could be replicated and scaled up and out in so many different ways, um, but they weren't getting the attention or research or investment that they needed. And so I think everything we do is sort of in defiance of, of that, you know, the, the sort of cultural, social, and political paradigm that still holds true in, in agricultural development across the globe. Um, when you said you wanted to get out of defiance, I, being a born and bred New Yorker, <laughs> <laughs> that seems very logical to me. <laughs> but I'm wondering, because one of the things that I think is really important is to find a way to bring hope to farm communities. Yeah. Right. So you found hope in the farmers in the work that they're doing. But I wonder how you feel about like what was it like growing up in that small town? What would you change about it today? And like yeah. what did it feel like for you as like a little kid in that place? I mean, I think I was just sort of always, you know, a unique <laughs> kind of misfit. Um, and I, you know, I, I was, you know, reading different books and saying different things. And, um, and it didn't make me better or worse. I just had a hard time um, understanding that, that community. And I think my sister was much different. She, you know, fit in in a different way than I did. And it wasn't, you know, until later that I looked back on that time and like, you know, especially farmers' wives that my mom was hanging out with and how they socialized and interacted that I realized how how great you know that that small town. I mean, small towns have you know their own sorts of, of weirdness and you know um, aren't always that inclusive. But I think you know that was a good community, and I wish I had realized that more when I was there. And in looking back, like what about is it the notion of helping one another? I mean, are there some seeds of the activism even in the thing that you rejected at the time? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think though, you know there's this sense of, of community that most of us have lost, you know, living in cities. And I've, I've lived all over. I mean, I've lived all over the world. I've lived all over the United States. And we don't have those same sorts of connections. And we're not as tied, obviously, to our food and where it comes from. And we're not as tied to sharing food. You know, my, my parents were very active in their church and, their, you know, that sort of church dinner kind of culture and, like, spaghetti dinners at school and that kind of thing. And I've talked about how, you know, when when people died and when my dad passed away, you know, farmers' wives brought over pies. I mean, it's just what you do. And we don't have that kind of same sort of um, sense of, of place and that social network of even people you just see once a week at church or whatever that that my family did and that community did. I don't, I don't think it still does. It's become very suburban since then. But, you know, I think it, it did at one time have this sort of great um, sense of, of helping one another out in times of need, even if you didn't know those people well. And you have, you don't, yourself, I don't think, have such a sense of place. You've just moved um, <laughs> right. to, again. to Baltimore right. again. <laughs> you had been in New Orleans. Um, you have lived all over the world. Do you, what from that experience in your life of moving so much, um, do you think has had an impact on you as a person, like the way that you see the world and the things you want to like embrace or change? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I've been so lucky. I mean, if you had asked me when I was 16, living in Defiance, Missouri, what I wanted to do with my life, I'm doing it. And nobody gets to say that. And I, so I, I do realize how grateful I should be, in, in, even when I'm jet lagged or, you know, 
tired or dizzy from you know not sleeping and eating weird meals. Um, I, it's an interesting question. I, I don't know what I've gained except that this, I have this ability to really just sort of observe and listen to what's going on. And, and I think that's helped me, especially when our co-founder Bernard Pollock and I were traveling through Sub-Saharan Africa. You know, I'm a journalist. I'm inquisitive in a lot of ways. I'm also a researcher. And so I like to ask questions. But I think listening to folks and sort of just sitting back and observing sometimes is better um, than, than interrogating them like I do with my little notebook or my <laughs> recorder, you know. And do you think the reason you answer that as part of how much you've moved around is that you're never in the place you're most comfortable, right? So yeah, you're I mean, most comfortable listening and not necessarily like jumping in and like, this is my opinion. Right, right. I mean, I definitely have an opinion on so many <laughs> things, right? But I think that the real, the real knowledge around food and agriculture that I've learned has become like from sitting on people's porches or in their fields with them or walking around with them and just sort of listening. And I, I think we don't do enough of, of that, especially in this very politicized, turbulent time. We um, are always attacking and, and, and not listening. So I, I, I try to do more of that. Um, and sometimes I get criticized for it. Like, why didn't you ask this question? Or why didn't you do this? And, you know, I don't always need to, to attack people. I, you know, I'd rather learn about where they're coming from and, and try to, to encompass that into what Food Tank does. Well, I was going to say, it's not as though that's your one and only opportunity. Right. Right. I mean, your brain becomes a repository for all these stories and all this information, and then it gets sorted and shared with people, but in, not in that exact moment in time. Absolutely. It, it actually, I could see the greater benefit of taking that and then adding it to everything you know. Absolutely. And also not alienating people that you're trying to right. work with, because alienating um, a community's an easy thing to do and building trust is a very hard thing to Absolutely. do. Absolutely. That's one thing that I've learned since 2016, if, if anything, that we, we can't alienate folks, especially in the food and agriculture community. I didn't realize until after the, the, you know, the 2016 presidential election how many of Food Tank's members and supporters were actually Republicans. And it, it's like what yeah, my just, eyes just yeah. went boing, and, and my head went back because you know we try we were we try to be non-biased, but I I mean you can look at me and know what my political views are probably, and so I Unless she's wearing a flower dress could, could go either way. <laughs> <laughs> she's got really good glasses that could go either way, and her nails are done. So I don't know, <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe um, living in the South did me good, um, but I, yeah I I think. Being able to listen to different viewpoints, even when you don't agree, has served Food Tank well. I mean, I think that's why we're able to convene so many different stakeholders on stage at our events and, you know, to talk to different people and and have food justice advocates on the same stage with, you know, big ag executives. I I think it's a special place that we're able to to bring those people together. I was going to ask you about exactly that, which is that you bring together people who have very different points of view, who really do not like being in the same room with each other. And if they were in the same restaurant, they would potentially walk right past. And you force them onto a stage. Yeah. um, Intentionally. So that's the forced part. But um, 
what happens? I haven't been to, you know, one oh, of your events. Gotta get you there. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just, I'm curious because there is so little dialogue. There's a lot of monologue. I feel like everybody's a child and there's a lot of co-play. Yeah. You know, you, so people can sit next to each other and they can talk. But it seems like your goal is to actually make them interact. Right. And I think it's in the uncomfortable. You know, you were talking about how I'm uncomfortable probably because I move around so much. I think we all need to be more uncomfortable and have more uncomfortable conversations and to talk to people who we don't know, who we don't agree with, and not come to necessarily common ground, right? Nobody's ever going to agree on anything or everything, I mean, but to realize that nothing is black and white, especially when you're talking about the food system. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of gray area. Nobody's really good and nobody's really bad. There's a lot of in between. And, you know, I have my favorite farmers. I have my favorite companies. But we need to be talking to everyone and literally bringing everyone to the table to sort of force them into that uncomfortable zone so that we can at least create the dialogue that I think is necessary and I think a lot of people think is necessary to move the food system forward. So that brings me to the question, because I'm talking about parallel play. That's what it's called. It's not co-play. Parallel play. So you have these people with different, different points of view. And, you know, in my experience, they don't move off their mark. Yeah. The result for the audience, I would imagine, is that they've heard two distinct points of view when they've only had one in the past. Right, right, right. right. So that they can hear the other. But what have you seen, like if you can give me a concrete example, of how minds are changed? Yeah. Because I think that that's what we need more of. And as I'm not even saying everybody should come to whatever my side might be. Sure. But how do you see that happen? Yeah, no, and I mean, we've had some interesting examples, and I can't really name names, but I'll, I'll just sort of yeah. tell you about them. At one of um, maybe the second year, second year that we were having our food tank summit in D.C., we had the head um, of a major farm labor organizing uh, uh, organization um, there to talk about workers' rights. And we also had um, one of the major uh, people at a, a fruit company that will remain unnamed. And, and they, you know, they'd, they'd never talked to each other before. They'd, you know, probably traded press release barbs at, at one another for years. And they sat down and had dinner together after the event. And, you know, I don't know whose mind was exactly changed, but getting those people to talk to one another. And the same thing is, like, you know, similar with we had two um, congresspeople who were on the same committee around agriculture, but they'd never had a meal together or really talked to one another or, you know, knew what the other person's background was or, you know, what their kids' names were. So sort of just getting people to act like people, <laughs> you know, and, and share a meal and share some conversation. I think that's important, you know. And so if my, I don't know how much minds are changed, but I think, um, and you know, sort of perspectives are changed. And, and that's what we're trying to do, bring these people together so that no one's evil, you know, and no one's sort of um, attacking one another. I mean, I had the same uh, sort of personal experience with the U.S. Food and Ranchers Alliance, where, you know, I met them at the World Food Prize one year, and they're like, I don't understand why you people are attacking us on Twitter. And I was like, we're not attacking you on Twitter, and I don't know who you people are, but, like, do you want to get a drink? You know? <laughs> so, and having that conversation with the head of, of the U.S. Food and Ranchers Alliance at that time changed our whole, like he came to our events, I went to his, and we had a very different working relationship. And I think we like each other. Like he's since moved on, but I think we actually liked each other after that. So you know, I think just understanding different points of view and understanding that 
the other person is actually a person. The, the and humanity not, actually is, right. is important to recognize. Right. And also I think you feel like you can influence a person. You can't influence an ideology. Right. right? And so influencing cardboard is so much harder. Absolutely. Uh, um, so I know that um, you've worked around the globe with grandmothers, mothers, and kids. And I'm just, I'm curious about the, so you're interested in gender as it relates to farming. And I'd love to know, because in America, it's not so much the tradition, but some of the extraordinary traditions that you've seen um, around the world that are inspiring. We're going to move to the inspiring part of the program, because you've done so much inspiring work around solutions and um, and just bringing these stories to light, I think, is so exciting. I don't know if it's so much around traditions, but just seeing how women, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, sort of organize themselves to, you know, create better lives for, the you know, their kids, themselves. I, I've just never seen anything like it. You know, when we were in Ghana, I, I talked to some women who had started a very small dairy cooperative, right? And they had sort of gone behind their husbands' backs to start this and, you know, you know, put a lot at risk. And But they were selling, um, like, yogurt and some other dairy products to a local school, like stuff that they were just making, very rudimentary, you know, kitchen and then processing it. And, you know, then their husbands found out about it and they were a little bit pissed off. And then, the, But the women were like, hey, we're making money. And so, like, once they saw, like, oh, this is a benefit, you know, the women were, they kept doing what they were doing, and then they had more leverage, you know, and and they were able to do things that they weren't able to do before. And I see countless examples of that all over the world, how women are, like, taking a big risk going behind their husband's backs or their father's backs and and sort of, you know, ditching these cultural norms that they've grown up with and and really trying to um, make sure that they're protecting their own communities and their own resources. So it's it's been inspiring to see. And it's at every generation. Like, I, I was very moved by the notion of the grandmothers. I don't know why that got to me, but no, the, yeah. just the notion of um, starting way back. It, I imagine there's some cultures where the women were doing all the farming anyway. Right. I mean, women, I think, you know, that's the, the misconception. We think of men on tractors, and it's really women who are growing a significant portion of food around the globe, 43% of food worldwide is, is, you know, actually grown by women that they make up 43% of the agricultural labor force. In some countries it's up to 80% because of migration or HIV AIDS or, or whatever. So we really have to realize that women are the backbone of food and agriculture, especially in the global South. And that if we don't invest in them and we don't, you know, make sure that they have great education and great resources, then we're really, you know, just sort of shooting our, ourselves in the foot, you know, because we need them to be producing food and be, you know, doing it in a sustainable and really educated way. So are, are you somewhere <clears throat> at the intersection of food and education in the global south? Like, does that... I mean, I think that's part of what we've been able to give a voice to those those organizations that are working so hard in the global south. I, I think we've been able to become a platform for some of the awareness building that they need. You know, and it's not just farming organizations. It's research organizations that are not part of the, the consultative group on international re, uh, agricultural research, the CGIAR, which has been sort of at the forefront of agricultural research for the last 60 years. You know, there are smaller research institutions. There are great universities universities in in the global south who are trying to push a lot of education forward and they don't get a lot of acknowledgement i'm glad we just did in that (laughs) case um and so one of the things that you try to do as i understand it is share the success stories right we hear so many there's so much of a drumbeat of negativity and 
really think well the the world indeed <laughs> has sure. a lot of problems but by focusing on some of the positive outcomes and positive things we can do i think it inspires more action right if we Absolutely. all think that there's nothing you can do and we are all doomed it just makes you just sit down and be like right. okay you know i'm not going to take an action because it's useless but so i'd love to have you share some of the positive outcomes that you've seen and that you've been um, championing. Absolutely. And I mean, just on that point, just for a second, I think, you know, I worked at this environmental organization from the start of my career, and we were so good at highlighting the problems. And it's the place where I kind of grew up and learned how to write and communicate, but we were not good at talking about the solutions. So sort of being able to do that now with Food Tank has been really awesome. And so one of the things that I've been doing here at Slow Food Nations in Denver is talking about how young farmers are coming together and organizing through the National Young Farmers Coalition. And they're such a great organization. They honestly don't need Food Tank to tell their story. They tell it well. But being able to highlight what, you know, Mar- Martin Lemos, the, the interim head of, of the National Young Farmers Coalition, or what people like uh, Jacqueline Knost, uh, who is a farmer with Nyman Ranch, she's 22, she just graduated. You know, she lives in South Dakota. She's going to take over her parents' farm one day. In the meantime, she's also become, uh, right out of college, a teacher uh, in, in, in high school around agriculture. Like that's the greatest story ever. She's, you know, been raising with her family, um, uh, humanely raised, uh, pigs for, you know, since 1998 before she was born, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) And, um, and, you know, to be able to carry on those, that tradition that her family has, has started because they weren't always growing food that way or raising food that way is really inspiring. So I think that, you know, that's just one example of what Food Tank gets to do. <laughs> we, we get to, like, share those stories with our readers or, you know, on our podcast or in our events. And, and I think that's, you know, the crux of, of why we're needed maybe right now. Let's talk about young farmers because I put so much hope in them, but I'm also fearful that the work is very difficult, it's poorly paid, and um, not well supported. Yeah. How do we fix that? I mean, do you have a vision for that? I mean, I think so many people who are smarter than me have visions for that, but I think the policy needs to change. We were talking about student loan debt uh, in, in this morning, and if we don't find a way to help kids, you know, who want to go into agriculture and maybe not just farming, but in advocacy or research or whatever, we need to find ways to help them cope with their student loan debt because that sets you up for failure very on. If you're not able to take a risk farming, if you're not able to take a job that you really want because you have to pay all that student loan debt off, then we're not we're not creating the the atmosphere for young people in agriculture and food to do well. And so I think there needs to be, you know, some real policy changes that help farmers do that, help young farmers do that, help them get access to land and mentorship and business skills. None of that's been set up. We've lost our our um, extension services for the most part in the United States. We're not helping any farmers of any age anymore. We've seen the, sorry, you know, we've seen the USDA disintegrate basically. And, you know, the, a lot needs to, to be re- reinstalled and we need to go even further when you think about all the challenges that we face and you do look at the the solutions and you share the solutions um through food tanks many um you know ways of messaging people i'm curious about the person you behind all of that because you're seeing so much hardship and you want so much change 
I mean, how do you feel about that? Um, like anyone else, I think, who works in the food and ag world, you get depressed, right? You're, you're seeing a lot of things that are scary and not, um, not going the way we, we'd hoped they would go by 2020, right? And so I think, you know, when I, 20 years ago, when I <laughs> was probably just at the beginning of all this, I thought 2020 would be very different. Um, and not just like in a Jetsons kind of way, but like, a, you know, that we would have made more progress on these things. And, and, you know, we would have made a bigger effort around climate change. I think back, you know, to the last two decades, if what, what if we had started what, you know, there seems to be more momentum for now. Um, but I have to remain hopeful because like we were talking about before, I get to talk to these cool women all over the world. I get to talk to cool young people. I get to be inspired by scientists who are trying, you know, to to do all the things that we need to do to make the planet better. So I, I just have to keep doing that, you know? I guess I'm just wondering about the, in, not to dwell on it, but I'm curious about the internal mechanism because I think it's something that so many people who want to create change face, right? They, they face the dep- depressing things that seem like the reality. And for them, they have to get out of, the morass of the that feeling mm. in order to do something and i'm just wondering if you've you know come up with a way for yourself is it like blocking it out is it you know making small steps and just saying i made this i'm going to do this small thing because i know that i i can do it and then gives me the will to keep not that you need the will but you know the, gives no, yeah. the will to keep going I'm, I mean, I'm wondering if there's some some way you think about it in your own mind that in sharing with others, they'd be like, ah, oh, you know what, that that makes me feel like I can go do that. I mean, it's the response that we get from our, our members and our readers and people who come to our conferences because they're like, I never heard that before. Or, I, you know, I learned something today that I'd never learned. And I think a lot of us who work in food and ag, and I'm including you in this, we sort of think that everyone knows what we have in our heads. And people are not thinking about food as much as I do or as much as you do every day, right? And so being able to like sort of see people, you know, their eyes light up or they get angry about something or they ask a really good question. Like, you know, in the panel I was at this morning moderating, like all these young people were asking really good, difficult questions. And that's like, that's everything because people are questioning. If we want, if Food Tank wants you know, what we want is for people to ask more questions, right? And to to be more informed. And so I think that's where it comes from, from for me is being able to interact at conferences like this one and see what people are interested in and then help them gain access to that information. You know, I think it's, I'm not, I'm not even that smart. I'm just really a hard worker. And so I feel like that was such a female. No, 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 no. I don't think it's a female thing to say. I think it's like, I've learned so much from the people I've met with, but I'm a really hard worker and my team. And, you know, I mentioned Bernard Pollock before we food tank wouldn't exist if, if Bernie wasn't involved. So it's just being able to keep communicating these things and the things that I've learned and the things that I've experienced. That's what keeps me going. I mean, there's really no other. It's not it's not that I'm better than anyone or smarter than anyone. It's just that we have to keep doing this because the urgency of these issues is so great. So you're driven by the urgency and then the effect that you see in others. Oh, yeah. So and it's, it's the small things that are happening every day that those people are doing, you know, that, that are making a big difference. It's not anything that I'm doing that's making the difference. It's what they're doing that helps make the, the, the whole thing, you know, sort of keep going and the awareness keep growing. And so that's why I'm so interested in young people, because they, they get to do that. They get to keep learning. 
Okay, and you get to keep learning too, and you do really, you do do great work that shares great work, and that itself, you know, that's like being an editor. The job of being an editor, in a way, seems like it's insignificant, but in a way, it's choosing oh, it's the stories for people to absolutely. hear, which is really what you're doing. You're choosing the stories that then have resonance, that then right. changes lives. Um, I'm, I know you spend a, t- a ton of time in sub-Saharan Africa, and you've traveled the world. Are there solutions to things that we face every day in the States that you've seen in other places mm. that you think are great models that you want to yeah. talk about? I mean, I think that's such a great question because I, I think – what we've assumed in the United States and in the global north is that we have so much to teach the rest of the world. And when you talk about climate change, especially like seeing agroforestry projects in Kenya or solar drip irrigation projects in Niger, one of the po- if not the poorest country in the world right now, I don't know what the rankings are right now, and see them work <laughs> is amazing. And, and then seeing it not happen here is confusing. And, and, and sort of the the know-it-all attitude that we have in the United States about food production. And I don't think it comes from our farmers. I think it comes from a lot of our policy. I, I think there's so much to learn from farmers in the developing world. And if only we had more sort of, you know, back-and-forth communication, um, you know. And th- that's kind of what Food Tank tries to do because we saw so much of that um, on the ground. Like, oh, why don't farmers in the U.S., you know, do diversified cropping systems? <laughs> Things that seem very simple, right? Um, but, you know, the, there are a lot of political things that keep far- and policy things that keep farmers in, in big ag here that they can't get out of. And it's not to blame farmers. It's to understand that they're facing a lot of obstacles that, you know, were not put in place by them. They were put in place by either big corporations or big policies that farmers had very little to do with making. And when you think about, um, like, everyone who's listening... Everybody can do something every single day. And I love the notion of the, like the, the smallest unit of change that you can make. Yeah. Um, my smallest unit of change, and let me assure you, it is small. <laughs> but I have a few of them, and I'm doing them one step at a time. My smallest unit of change is there are no paper towels anymore in my apartment. I, don't, I tend not to use them, but you know, my husband will come home, or my daughter, no offense to you guys, but you know, there's just... Yeah. They just take them as though they didn't come from a tree, right. which makes me bananas. So, like, I'm honoring the tree by no paper towels. And I also, um, I have a strange dual obsession. Well, an obsession that has a down, it has a very dark side. My obsession is that I go to farmer's markets, and every farmer's market that I go to, I buy. I literally try to buy something from every farmer, sure. d- depending sure. on the size, right? Of course, and, of course. Um, but I don't need to eat that much food. I just want to support them. But what right. I end up doing, in fact, as my son pointed out to me really alarmingly, is like you're just creating waste. So you're you know, helping feed a farmer, but you're actually contributing to the 40% of food that's yeah. wasted in America today. So my... Um, my small goal once we totally accomplish only you know bamboo and sponges and no <laughs> paper towels anywhere is going to be this small act of right-sizing my uh, farmer's market problem. Sure. Uh, I'm curious if you have any of those small things. I have such a similar problem because I love food and all I think about is food and I go to the farmer's market, I go to the grocery store and I'm like obsessed with, you know, I like abundance, right? Like a lot of Americans, but I travel all the time. And my husband, 
you know, he's awesome, but he really doesn't cook that much. And he eats out a lot when I'm gone, especially. So, like, I'll come home and either everything had to be tossed or composted or whatever. Or, you know, it's still sitting there and you don't know what to do with it. (laughs) So what I've tried to do is buy less and freeze more. And it's been really hard for me because I maybe in my past life I was hungry all the time because I want that abundance of food. So that's been a struggle for me and one that I've like had to sort of battle with my whole adult life since like living on my own, you know, so sort of a similar problem. Um, So just learning to make big batches of food and freeze them and then also eat them. That's <laughs> you the know? problem because I've done that too. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. There's so many tops of vegetables right. in my um, ref, you know, yeah. freezer for, for a the pesto <laughs> and for the broth that I'm actually never going to make. But I, I have such good intentions. I mean, we all do. And I think giving ourselves a break, I, I feel like so much onus is placed on consumers in this country. Like you need to solve all of these food problems. They're all your fault. You know, you have to give yourself a break and remember that food is meant to be enjoyed. No one knows that better than you, right? Food is meant to be enjoyed and loved. And so, you know, give yourself a break. Do the best you can. Um, You know, support your farmers, but also realize that you can't buy everything, maybe. But I I think it's also, you know, we have to give ourselves a break. I think that's like that's a, a lovely... A lovely way to end. I always ask on my show, so I'm going to ask you here, to pay it forward to an extraordinary woman you admire who is working oh, in food uh, locally, in this country, globally, someone who you feel deserves more recognition for the extraordinary work that they do. I mean, I don't think she needs more recognition, but I'd love everyone to to know more about her. I mean, I wouldn't be who I am if I hadn't read Francis Moore Lappe's book when I was 15 years old, Diet for a Small Planet. If I hadn't been sitting in my bedroom that my mom had so lovingly decorated with, like, cool things and read that book that I ordered, you know, not online, but, like, ordered from the back of a magazine where you, you filled not. it out. Yeah. I remember and, we didn't do that. And so... I am so, you know, grateful that she wrote that book, that she has continued all this amazing work around democratizing the food system, that I know her, that she also knows my name. Like, that was one of the greatest moments of my entire adult life was meeting her in person. And then knowing her daughter, Anna Lappe, really well, it's just been such a a privilege. And so I'm grateful for her almost every day. Tell tell people a little bit more about her, because that the book title says quite a bit, but I'm not sure. I actually... She has achieved a very high level of fame, but it's also not so recent, and people's memories aren't very long. Right. So she wrote this book, I don't know, maybe 1970, and she was just doing all this research around food production, and she was one of the first people to identify that in, you know industrial meat production is not that great for the planet because the conversion rates are not that great. She, with her former husband, Mark LaPay, started food first which then became this great policy and advocacy organization um she started the small planet institute and then the small planet fund which funds small projects all over the globe she's written countless books you know with her daughter and without and and so just has been an amazing advocate um and then around this issue of of really putting a focus on democracy and democratizing how you know um food is is produced and processed and you know distributed and making sure that people understand sort of you know workers rights and land rights she's just been an incredible advocate in a million ways that I don't think 
uh, a lot of us know. But you no, know. you. I've just learned a lot listening because I still remember for whatever reason I have an incredibly clear image in my mind of holding that book and being in a science lab and having that being taught in science class to me when I was uh, in high school. Oh, that's and, amazing. And um, and I don't remember a lot of books. I just that one made yeah. such an impression on me and then got put away in the back of my mind until I you know reemerged as right. someone completely obsessed with food. Um, and again, had the privilege of meeting her her daughter Anna. Anna, but um, thank you so much for joining us today at Heritage on Tour, Slow Foods Nation in Denver. I want to thank um, the generous sponsors of Heritage Radio Network for this amazing podcast, uh, Hearst Ranch and Big Green Egg. And stay with us uh, for more great podcasts coming out of Denver.